At this time, I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to particularly be looking at verses 6 through 14 this morning. Galatians 3, 6 through 14. Uh, The title of the message this morning is Trusting God's Promises. I retitled it when I was scratching through the notes and thinking through what I was going to say. Learning to Trust God's Promises would be a better title probably. Learning to Trust God's Promises. It is not easy to trust God, to trust His character, and to believe He's there for you and will always be there for you. It's difficult. We have what I've come to know is very, very powerful in my life and in your life. You and I have what's called an inner narrative, an inner voice, a subtext that's always telling you something. Whether it's good or whether it's really awful, you always are talking to yourselves, even if you don't know that you're talking to yourselves. That's why you have dreams about things that you're really thinking about, but you're not really acknowledging to yourself and going, what in the world is going on with me? We're talking to ourselves. We're hearing messages from the inside, and we're also hearing messages from the outside. The world is always giving you a message. And my question is, what messages are you listening to? What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the devil himself who is constantly assaulting our minds and our thinking with lies? As the father of lies, he's always trying to destroy your joy and to tell you to not trust the gospel, to not really believe in the free promises and riches and treasure that's found for us in the gospel. It's easy to fall prey to lies like this. You're really no good at all. You're really no good at all. Where you say, well, no, I'm a reformed Calvinistic person. I mean, I know I'm a worm, you know. No, but I mean, there's a sense in which God has made you in the image of God and you've done some things by God's grace for God's glory that are good. And Satan wants to say, nope, you've never done anything good in your life. Satan tells you you're a complete failure. Satan tells you that you really amount to nothing. Or Satan will reverse this effect and say, nope, you're the greatest. You're the greatest person that's ever lived. You say, hi, how are you? Aren't you glad to meet me? I mean, that, that, that's a satanic fleshly idea, either that we're completely worthless or that we're worth a whole lot. These are non-gospel messages. Perhaps a more deeper, more core message that you could be tempted to believe would be, you will never be completely and fully forgiven. You have done so many sins... They've added up to such a tremendous, infinite pile against God, against humanity, against my family. I can never be free from the guilt of my sin load. Or this particular sin. This is a satanic lie that you can nurse and you can nurse all the way to your own insanity where you say, I did this one thing. And if anybody ever knew the one thing that I did, this particular category of sin, they would never forgive me. So God will never forgive me. God won't forgive me. These are non 
gospel, non-God-glorifying, false lies, falsehoods. These are against God, and they build what's called false guilt in our lives. Listen to what Martin Luther tells. He told of a sad story of a physician who ended his own life because he was convinced that Christ was accusing him before the Father over his sins. The thought battered the man and was not from God, but from Satan. Why do we know this? Well, because the scripture says of Christians that Christ does not accuse us before the Father, but pleads for us on the basis of his shed blood. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We sang that earlier. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, these are bewitching spells. A lot of people will try to prove that they know right because God told them something. But we can challenge that and say, no, no, God told you something you think. But God's word is telling you something else. So guess what? Even though you say God told you, you say, well, God told me. You can't argue with that. Yes, I can Because if God told you something, or you think he did, that's contrary to Scripture, then God didn't tell you, and very likely it's Satan who told that to you. So we have to combat these bewitching spells, these devilish schemes that get into our minds. We have to combat and destroy the false narratives with the promises of God. We need to recenter our identity in the gospel, a selfless identity in Christ. We need to reassert our security as a believer, knowing where we are going when we die. If we don't do this, we will try to dig our way out in our own flesh, not by faith, not by the Holy Spirit, but in our own strength, to our own demise. Now, as we're going to look at several promises in the passage before us, mind you, these are Old Testament promises. This is Paul as a New Testament, New Covenant Christian, just like us, who is reaching back to the Old Testament to find promises and apply them in terms of the gospel for our own good. Remember, verse 1 says, shows us that Paul was confronting, he was, he was going after the Galatians saying, listen, Who has bewitched you? This was an intervention. Paul is taking out the defibrillator paddles and trying to shock the church into a submission to the gospel. And so once he's shocked them, once he's pulled down these barriers by saying, listen, you were, you began by the Holy Spirit. You were saved by the Holy Spirit. You were being kept by the Holy Spirit. You're not being kept by your own works. You're being kept by Christ crucified and by the saving gospel, which has transformed your life. And by the way, you haven't suffered in vain. Look at verse 4. You haven't suffered in vain. You're fighting the good fight of faith. You're taking hits spiritually. Why? Because the Spirit of God is alive in you. And so who has bewitched you? He's shocking the church so that the walls of self-sanctification, self-justification will come tumbling down. But then, once he's broken them down, he wants to then rebuild them with the promises of God. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at how to trust in promises of of God. A promise of God, by the way, is not something that we just make up on a conference weekend. 
the promise keepers, right? The only true promise keeper is God, right? Not man. We're going to be promise breakers. God is the true promise keeper. And so he always keeps his promises. He can't fail us. He can't fail in terms of his promises. But it's also important to understand this distinction between God's promises. God always keeps his promises, but all of his promises are not necessarily encouraging to us that he keeps. Do you ever think about that? God's promises are for believers. And he promises to love us, never be separated from us, and also to chasten us, to convict us of sin, to hold us accountable, to use his church to hold us accountable. Great fun. Thank you, Lord, for these promises, right? All of promises are God's promises are God's promises, but not all are encouraging. Especially those are the promises that are for condemned people, people who are unbelievers. For a believer, they are confirmed and affirmed by God's promises, and an unbeliever is warned and condemned by God's promises. You find all of these kinds of promises in the verses that are before us. These are great ones, and these are terrifying ones that we are going to look through, and we need both versions. And I do want to say this. This is a hard text. We are now going into a hard study. This is a study where I want you to dig in with me for a little while. Some difficult work before us. Trusting all God's promises. Look at verse 6. Let me read beginning there. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham... And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's stop there. There's a lot here and this is just half of what we're going to work through in the next 20 minutes or so. But I would invite you to to again zero in on these promises. The first promise has to do with justification, and we've talked a lot about justification. It's the Greek word dikaiosune, which means to be made righteous. It's a forensic or legal courtroom-like declaration that you are pronounced fully righteous before God. Your sins are as scarlet, they are turned white as snow. You are Filthy rags before a holy God, and God covers you with Christ's righteousness. The life he lived is attributed to your account. The life you lived and are living and will live is attributed to Christ's account. And so he died for your sinful life on the cross and gave you his righteous life instead. It's called substitutionary atonement. He has covered you. This is justification. How does this justification come? Well, it comes simply through believing. And it's exampled here in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is core, by the way, for the Galatians. The Galatians were struggling to continue to apply justification to their lives. And it's interesting that Christian 
people can struggle with continuing to apply the gospel to their lives. But nevertheless, it's a true thing that they did and weren't doing and that you do and probably aren't doing. You, like me, need to continue to apply the gospel to yourself. To, as one person said, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. To believe in the grace of God alone. They needed it. It was core to these Gentile believers for them to believe the gospel and not to go back to ceremonies that the Jews were trying to force upon them. You have to be like a Jew first and do these ceremonies to come into the club. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. If you're a believer, if you've believed in grace alone, then you're in. Then you are righteous, counted righteous. This takes us right back to Genesis chapter 15. I invite you to turn back to the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15 this morning. You say, I thought we were going to be in a gospel service this morning. I'm going to be in something that, you know, is gospel fresh and new covenant. Well, let me just explain to you that the gospel is the same gospel from Genesis to Revelation. The golden thread of scripture that says you are saved by grace through faith alone is a comprehensive truth that's Genesis to Revelation. And so we find this all the way back in Genesis 15. Look at verse 6. This is where Paul took the promise. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. As righteousness. This is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, who was from Ur of the Chaldees. Just think about it. All of the Jewish nation came out of his loins. God promised the land between the Tigris and Euphrates to be the promised land for the people of God, the Jewish nation. But what's so wonderful about Abraham believing God and it being counted to him as righteousness is that he just believed what God told him. He believed the promises that God told him. That's all he knew. And then God said, because you're a believer, I'm going to bless you. This predates the Mosaic law. It predates Moses by about 400 years. All that was going on um, with Moses and the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai and what we find in the Pentateuch, all of that was going to be written four generations later. This all predates that. Ethnically, this predates the Jews. You have Abraham, who's from a far region, Ur of the Chaldees, in modern-day Assyria. He's being called to be the progenitor, the father of this nation, but really, he's the father of the, watch this, nations. Because he's the father of all who would believe from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We are children of Abraham in the sense that we believe like he believed. And that's what Paul is doing here. Significant. Ethnically speaking, that is a significant thought because what we're talking about is we're talking about the gospel that is put in full display in Genesis 15. If you see, just to bring things from black and white to color, you can see in verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's not talking about just the Jewish people. 
though it is. It's more broad than that. And then he made a covenant, verse 8. And in the Old Testament, it was the idea of cutting a covenant. The word covenant means to cut. And so he said to Abraham, cut up some animals. Bring me a heifer, verse 9. A female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought all of these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. The sun was going down. Listen to verse 12. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Why did Abraham have to fall asleep? Well, simply this. Abraham set the conditions for the covenant. But God was going to be the one who was going to make the covenant. And he was making it on behalf of Abraham, but he was not making it with Abraham. The covenant was made with himself. God staked the reputation of this covenant on himself. The Mosaic covenant, by contrast, is called a bilateral covenant. It was between God and Moses or God and the Israelites. It was based on if the, if the Israelites obeyed, then they would be blessed. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed. Ultimately, they could be cut off from God through their disobedience. The Abrahamic covenant precedes the Mosaic covenant. It's called a unilateral covenant. And guess what? It's the same covenant that you have in the gospel. Again, let me just show this to you. What, what happened? Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and there'll be judgment on the nation that they serve. Verse 15, and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried in good old age and they shall come back here in fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river, the great river of Egypt at, uh, to the great river, the river Euphrates. This was a unilateral covenant. This is the same kind of covenant that God made in the new covenant where he staked everything on Christ. Everything on Christ. God made a covenant with himself by sacrificing his own son within the Trinity. So that when that would be applied to you, there would be nothing that you could do to ever break it. That's a promise. That's a promise. It's a very, very unique promise. If you go back to Galatians, you'll see that, you'll see that um, in Galatians... Chapter 3, we are called something because of this covenant. Look at verse 7. Now then, that it is, those of faith are who are of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. You're called the sons of Abraham. This is genealogical language. This is the language of the Old Testament of First Chronicles. You're like Isaac. You're like Jacob. You're in the line of Abraham. Luke 19.9. This is where Jesus used the same phrase about Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He was a Jew, but he was working for the Roman government. And he was a hated Jew. And, and Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. What did he mean by that? Do you mean just because he's a Jew, 
Zacchaeus is in the family of God? No. He was a Jew ethnically, but he was a believer like Abraham. That's what made him part of the family of God. So if you're ever tempted to believe you're not part of the family of God, then just ask yourself, am I believing the gospel? Because if I believe the gospel, then God has counted me as righteous. Even if I've got satanic thoughts or I've got selfish thoughts or worldly thoughts that tell me I need to do something to keep myself in the kingdom, you can't. Abraham couldn't break the covenant. Remember he lied? He lied twice about Sarah. Oh, it's my half-sister. It's all good. He was a liar, but he was counted righteous. All right, second promise comes under the heading of being blessed. This is verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Stop there. This is talking about being blessed under this covenant, and specifically in this verse, it points back to Genesis 12, verse 3. What's interesting to me, before we go back to Genesis 12, is look at verse 8. It says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. There's what's called personification here. Paul is very, very convinced, as well we should be, that the scripture is alive. The scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword. The scripture is the illuminated, inspired, inerrant, infallible power source of God. It is the Greek word, the graphe. It is what is written for us. It is the revelation of who God is. It is the revelation of God's will. It is the voice of God and the mind of God to your heart and to your life. That's the scripture. And so when Paul says, the scripture preached this. He's saying God's word preached this, God's voice preached this, God's mind preached this to us thousands of years ago. And it's being applied right now today. I love that. The scripture, as if the scripture was a person foreseeing or looking ahead prophetically that God would justify Gentiles by faith. He's saying that to the Galatians. You feel discouraged. You think you're out. You think that you are beyond God's grace. You think that you're not ethnically qualified. You think that you've not measured up by keeping enough legalism standards. You feel like you can't be forgiven. But guess what? The scripture from the Old Testament preached that you were going to get saved one day. It preached that you were going to be in the family of God one day. That's what the scripture did. So when you claim a promise, the scripture, the voice and mind and heart of God should speak to you and say, the scripture says I'm saved. That's why I know I'm saved, because the scripture says I'm saved. That's what Paul is doing here. The scripture did this, which means God did this. What are you saying? God has told us that this was going to happen. Don't let people tell you. Otherwise, the scripture says that the Gentiles would be saved by simply believing. And the scripture preached the gospel before into Abraham saying, here it is. In you shall all the nations be blessed. All right, let's go back to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 15, by the way, is read through the lens of what happened in Genesis 12. This is the call of Abram, who is ultimately Abraham, renamed by God. Genesis chapter 12, 
where God calls Abraham. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the same word Paul is using in Galatians. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the gospel right here. Old Testament gospel. It's as fresh in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is missions. This is where this chapter turns missions. All the families of the earth, all the races of the world will have believers like you. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There is neither male nor female. There's neither black nor white. Asian. Just fill in the blank. Polynesian. Indian. We're all one in Jesus Christ. It's a great verse for the genders. As people are so... They're fighting against gender specificity, specifying male or female, trying to fight for something, trying to fight for leverage, trying to fight for power, trying to be something that they are not. But instead, we find our identity in Christ. So we can be the race that we are born into. We can be the gender that we are born. And we can be co-equal heirs in Christ as one grand and beautiful mosaic that God puts together for beauty, for glory, for the display of his image in the world, and more importantly, in heaven. It's the glory of the gospel. The gospel is a blessing because we understand that we are part of it. We're part of the good news that has gone to the nations. Look at Galatians. Go back to Galatians again. Chapter 3. This is the missions verse. It's amazing. Again, verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would um, justify the Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham. So Abraham became a believer. He was saved, but it wasn't just about Abraham. The promise is, in you shall all the nations. And so you move from Abraham, you have the Jews, you have the Jewish people, then you have the Gentiles, then you have all the nations, all the world will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. Galatians three twenty six and 29. I was quoting it earlier. There's not Jew nor Greek. There's not slave nor free. Care what your occupation is, your background, your educational experience, your aptitudes or lack thereof. We're all one in Christ. One in Jesus Christ. We're all partakers. We are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're justified. That's a promise. Secondly, we are blessed, and then verses 10 and 12 bring up how we are accountable. Let me read verses 10 through 12. One of the most confusing parts of what I'm going to say this morning comes from these verses. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God 
by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Stop there. Think about accountability here. Being accountable by the law. Verse 10 is bringing up one of these promises that actually is not a promise of encouragement, but a promise of warning. A promise of warning. A promise that we are supposed to hang on to even if it doesn't preach the same kind of encouragement to us at first glance. It's a warning. It's something not to do. Verse 10 again is talking specifically about not, look at this in the first phrase, not relying on the works of the law. Not relying on the works of the law. Say, I don't do that. Not relying on some sort of performance-based lifestyle. If I do enough, if I live enough, if I get affirmed enough, if I want to be friends with cults where they're works-based and I sort of syncretize with them and we all call each other Christians, if I do that enough, it's works-based stuff that gets involved in our lives instead of being very clear that we can't earn our right standing with God. Only God has done it. So don't rely on legalism or fundamentalism to make yourself right with God. In fact, you're under a curse if you do that. You're under a curse. It could mean that you're not saved at all. Later on, Paul uses extreme language to shock the church and say, you've been severed from Christ if you do this. Meaning you were never in Christ because of how bad the fruit of your life is revealing your heart to be. You can bring yourself to a point of no return by relying on the works of the law. Well, verse 11 then turns to a very positive promise. And we're going to tie together 10, 11, and 12 to explain all of them. It says it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Verse 10 is saying, cursed be everyone who does not abide by, look at this, all things written in the book of the law and do them. The idea is, look, if you're going to try to get there by law keeping, you better not just obey some of it. You you better obey all of it. You better be Jesus Christ and his righteousness if you're going to claim that your law keeping gets you in a right standing with God. If you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of it all, I think James 1 says. Guilty of it all. Maybe that's James 2. If you blow it in one area, one time, for one nanosecond, you are guilty. It completely soils anything that you would see as your righteousness. So if you want to get on a performance treadmill of law-keeping, watch out. And verse 11 says it's evident that no one's justified. No one's made right by doing that. And then... Paul quotes Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And he says, the famous words, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. He quotes Habakkuk 2, 4 in Romans as well. And then verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That verse is also an important verse to bookend what Paul is saying. He's saying, first of all, in verse 10, if you're going to go on to trying to keep the law to make yourself right, if you're going to go backwards, back to the Old Testament path where it was law time, and God was going to say, I'll bless you or I'll curse you in terms of your obedience or your disobedience, and I'll provide a mercy path for you to offer sacrifices, 
of repentance to show you that you can't keep the law. If you want to go backwards into that realm again, you're under a curse. You're under a curse. We've been delivered from that curse. It's the gospel that delivers from that, us from that. We live by faith. Verse 12, it says, but the law is not of faith. Keeping the law in that way is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. What's he saying here? Is that a positive phrase or a negative phrase? Shall live by them. Well, just to completely confuse you, this is coming from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And the essence of it is this. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant system, the Old Testament Israelites were commanded to live by the law. To live by the law. They were. That was the way and means of blessing for their life. In, in Canaan, in the promised land, God gave laws for them to obey. And if they didn't, they would be cursed. And so Leviticus 18.5 is basically a... A warning and a promise in the Old Testament saying, look, you need to obey them and you will live with some blessing in the promised land. But now applied after Christ has come and we're clear on the gospel and we're in the new covenant age. If you try to do that now, you're under a curse. If you try to live through some sort of external obedience now, you are under a curse. That's what Paul is doing. Just to clarify this, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 27. This is where Paul was quoting from in verse 10. Deuteronomy 27. This is a pretty heavy chapter just to read. It's Moses who wrote Deuteronomy. He wrote the the first five books of the Bible. and He wrote Deuteronomy to reiterate what he had written in Exodus because Moses was not going to go into the promised land. Moses would get as far as the mountain looking down. Um, Joshua would take over and lead the troops over Jordan where the water stood up on, it, on itself like a heap. He would lead them across in the promised land and they would be led across with the law of God, with the ability for them to hear from God and know that God will bless them or he will curse them based on their obedience or their disobedience. And so verse 1 of 27, Moses is speaking and the elders are speaking. Verse 9, Moses and the Levitical priest are speaking and they're saying, as, as you cross Jordan, write this law down. Set up stones as reminders of the law of God. And then when we get down to verse 15, if you just sort of scan through verses 15 through 28, you'll see at the beginning of each verse there the word cursed. If you do these things, you'll be cursed. Verse 15, curses is the man who makes a um, cast metal image, it's an abomination. Verse 16, cursed is anyone who dishonors father or mother. 17, cursed is anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Curse, I, I think that was an Old Testament car, I'm not sure, just kidding. All right, verse 18, cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Verse 19, who perverts justice. Verse 20, who lies with his father's wife. Verse 21, lies with any kind of animal. 22, lies with his sister. 23, lies with his mother-in-law. Curse be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Curse be anyone who takes a bribe and sheds innocent blood. And then verse 26, this is what Paul is quoting in culmination of all I've just read. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. In other words, we are scared to death. 
We are warned. We get it. Back to Galatians chapter 3. Paul, in essence, is saying what solves this is not our external obedience, but what solves this in our lives is verse 11, the promise from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. By faith. There's one thing that I want you to walk away from. It's that you need to work on not working. (laughs) You need to work on not striving. You need to work on allowing God to work in your life. Say, how do I do that? Well, faith is the acknowledgement that you can't earn it. You can't keep yourself right with God. Faith is the heart disposition of openness to the Lord. We're to come with open hands. That's why we come on bended knee before God and say, God, I can't save myself. I can't keep myself right with you. My words are the instrument that you're using to trumpet the fact that I can't save myself. You're acknowledging in yielded submission to the Father, just like the Pharisee and the tax gatherer, the tax gatherer that said, I can't even look to heaven. I only beat my chest and say, God, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. Be still and know that he is God. We can't rely on works. Yeah, there was mercy in the Old Testament. There was a sacrificial system. But that sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. You ever think about that? Every one of the millions and millions of sacrifices that was ever performed under ceremonial law, all of them, all of them, all of them were a foreshadowing and a prophetic prediction of the sacrifice of Christ. And every time I think an Old Testament saint sinned, would go out into the farmyard, would get an animal to be slain on an altar, every time they would do that, they would probably in their heart think, this is an inadequate sacrifice really for what I've done. Because they have a conscience. They know they're doing something religiously. That's why God said to to, uh, David when he sinned in Psalm 53, sacrifice I will not require. A broken and contrite heart is what I require. That's what I want. I want a broken and contrite spirit. But that brokenness, performing a sacrifice, was always inadequate. It was like in the DNA of the Old Testament saint where an Old Testament saint would ultimately either harden up and say, this really is insufficient. I can't keep the law. I keep falling to the law. And even my sacrifices feel inadequate. And that Old Testament saint would either harden or would soften and say, there must be a greater solution. There must be a coming Messiah or deliverer who will help me. Being a doer and... Living by the law might have, might have brought blessing in the promised land, but it did not bring the full assurance that our gospel does. And that leads us to verses 13 and 14. I guess I should read verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's talking superficially. And you go to verse 13. The last 
category of promises I want to open up is that of being redeemed. You're justified. You're blessed. You're held accountable through these promises. And ultimately, you can know that you are redeemed by the promises of God. This is where something that is negative turns very positive very quickly. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us by becoming a capital offender on your behalf. This phrase right here is a civil phrase. It's in the civil category of the law that everyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed. This is talking about being executed, execution. Everyone who receives Death by lethal injection is under a curse. Everyone who goes to the electric chair is under a curse. Everyone who is hanged out there somewhere in the world for something they've done wrong is under a curse. This is saying that Jesus Christ going on the cross meant that he was under a curse. This is picking up on Deuteronomy 21, 20. 2 and 23 being hanged on the tree there were strict stipulations here where a body could not be pinned to a tree all night long because that would literally defile the land for which that tree was on they were more concerned about the tree and the land than the person who'd been killed that's why jesus when he was condemned to the cross was taken down before the Sabbath. They took down the robbers. They took down Jesus before the Sabbath because for him to be up there, now we understand why he's up there and it's beautiful, but to the world watching someone like Jesus die, that was defiling, that was abhorrent, that was despicable. It's why Saul, before he became Paul, went on the crusade to stamp out Christianity in the name of the fact that Jesus was pinned to a cross. Because obviously, Jesus was a curse. But that very conviction of Saul who became Paul, that hatred toward Christ on the cross was flipped. This is what happens when you're converted. Something abhorrent, something grotesque, something despicable, something that no movie can describe in terms of what Jesus looked like with his back shredded to ribbons, what he looked like with long Roman spikes pierced through his wrists, what he looked like to have his beard ripped out, what he looked like to have his face smashed, to have the crown of thorns driven into his head, what it looked like to have a nail through his ankles, what it looked like for him to be stripped naked, what it looked like for him to be mocked, what it looked like for him to be spat upon. That's a curse. And that grotesque, abhorrent, awful image of Christ crucified, what we really could not stomach to watch and observe, becomes beautiful and glorious and symbolic and precious to our hearts because we realize that Christ became a curse so that you and I would not become cursed. Right? 
the gravity of God's law where it's spoken. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy saying, you're under a curse if you're hanged on a tree, is that very gravity that Paul is using to say, listen, Gentiles, you should not, cannot, shall not stay under the bewitching spells of legalism. No to fundamentalism. No to separatism. No to legalism. No to being forced to believe that you need to do something to keep yourself right with God. No, 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 no. The yoke of bondage is off. Jesus' path, is burden is easy and light. Christianity is about a relationship with Christ. It's about worship with Christ. It's about being accepted in Christ. It's about having a high priest who understands your needs, who knows what you're going through. It's Christ crucified. It's Christ your Savior, Christ your Lord. It's not about you rigidly trying to keep yourself good with God. All of that is thrown off under the curse that Christ took upon himself to redeem you. You're bought back. You're good with God because of what he did. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You get to be believers. You get to be part of the church. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer under its effects. They've been eradicated so that you might receive the promised spirit. When did the spirit come? The spirit came after Christ died. He hung on the tree, was buried, rose again on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit came down. And the New Covenant, New Testament church that we're a part of is filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the promised spirit. Jesus made the promise. The Spirit of God would live in you if you would but exercise faith so if you haven't exercised faith let me just tell you this believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved say it again if you're not yet regenerate if god hasn't awakened you spiritually just be honest with yourself you don't have to tell anybody what's going on inside of you right now this is you before god Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believe. Exercise this complete disposition of reliance upon the gospel. How do you do that? Well, God does it in you and you'll know it when it's happening. Say, I'm clear. The lights have come on. Jesus is more precious to me than anything else. You might not understand all the ins and outs of the gospel. I don't care. Just believe on him. Say, save me. I cannot save myself. And God will save you. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you a little secret. Every Christian in this room is praying for you if you have not yet believed. That's going on right now. And you're here not by accident, but... Under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he might be drawing you to salvation for all of eternity. To be saved, to be one of his, and kept forever. Disposition of life 
here not by accident, but under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, 